Um, but before that, as Deb said, um, well, firstly, because it's Remembrance Sunday, um, after the service up in the uh, in the, the middle of the village on the just off the high street near the post mill centre this morning at around about 12 o'clock they're going to be uh, laying some wreaths obviously to uh, to commemorate you know the fallen heroes so after the service we're going to be going up there and, and laying a wreath on behalf of J28 Church uh, so Tony and myself are going to head up there but it's open to anybody if you did want to go up it's at the post mill centre uh, in town so I'm going to make sure that we come to a close you know just before 12. Um, and yes, what did we say that I was going to mention about the Lantern Parade? That is it, the Lantern Parade. So on the 1st of December, the first week of December, uh, obviously we would usually have cafe church. So instead of us uh, doing cafe church, we're going to put our weight behind getting involved in what's going on in the community, join with the other churches in South Normanton uh, with what the parish council has, uh, has organised. There's going to be a road closure of the main road on Market Street, um, and there's going to be a parade starting from St. Michael's Church at 4pm uh, on that day. So it would be great if we can go along and, and be involved. It's going to culminate down in the centre of the village where there's going to be you know, gathering around the Christmas tree. Some of the schools are going to be singing uh, some, some, some Christmas, sarrel, uh, Christmas sarrels. Christmas carols. That's a new one, isn't it? Christmas sarrels. Uh, Christmas carols together. I believe that then afterwards we're going to go back to the post mill for refreshments, etc. So should be a good, um, a good event and a good witness, obviously to our community. So let's get straight into it this morning. Who's enjoying this series so far? I thought Tony brought a, an absolutely fantastic word last week, and uh, you know I just want to reiterate, actually, you know. Um, just in a moment's time, something that Tony brought, which I thought was important. But let's go, let's go first then to the text. This is Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, we're going to go verse 1 to 9. It says, in the, ki- in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah speaking. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2. Above him were seraphim. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I mean what an amazing sight. Isaiah seeing this vision. Verse 4 it says at the sound of their voices. The doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew, with me, uh, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken, from the tongue, taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people. And then he goes on and uh, and the Lord explains some of the things that he's going to send Isaiah to the nation to say. But just before I kind of get into the crux of what I want to share this morning... You know, Tony mentioned something really important last week, and I can't help that, but, um, you know, but that be reaffirmed as I was reading through Isaiah chapter 6 last week. You know, Tony was mentioning um, how important it is that when 
when we speak to people that we always, before we present the wrath of God, that we always present people with the love of God first. Before we present the wrath of God, we always present the love of God first. That love, of course, you know, that's perfectly shown in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, what sprang to my attention as I read through the first few verses of Isaiah is that, you know, Isaiah's having this incredible encounter, isn't he? He's having this remarkable encounter with God where, you know, he has this vision of the Lord's robe filling the temple and he sees these heavenly beings crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. It's a phenomenal scene. And the first thing that Isaiah said, this just jumped out of the page at me this week. And like I say, this is a bit of an aside. It's not so much to do with what I'm saying, but it just jumped out of the page at me this week. That The first thing that Isaiah says is, woe is me. Woe is me. He sees this incredible encounter with God and Isaiah says, woe is me for I am, for I am ruined. You know, Isaiah in that very moment was so aware of his flaws and his failures. He was so aware of his flaws and his failures and his sin. You know, and this is the point that I believe, you know, Tony was making last week, which was great. That often, you know, we get so uptight, don't we, about, um, you know, about people knowing their guilt and that they feel the Lord's conviction. You know, could I just put it to us this morning? This is what I felt the Lord was saying to me. Don't be too concerned with that because God will take care of that. Let's not us be too concerned with that because God takes care of that. Let me tell you, an encounter with God, an encounter with him lets you very quickly become aware of your shortcomings. I know this firsthand, that when I come into the Lord's presence, it doesn't mean that he's cruel, it doesn't mean that he's unkind, but you, you can't come into the presence of God. Sin can never come into the presence of God without being exposed for what it actually is. When it comes into the presence of greatness. You cannot stand in the presence of the Almighty and experience his, you know, his glory. You can't experience his majesty without getting a profound sense of your need for his grace and forgiveness. You know, just as a young man, I was sharing this last week in, you know, in a couple of our meetings here last weekend. You know, just part of my testimony. And that's one of the first things that I became also aware of. That when I encountered God just as a young man and I really experienced his presence, I became so aware that I needed his forgiveness and that I needed his grace. I couldn't stand before him like I was some kind of great man. I was, I was just aware that he's a great God and that I'm in need of him. So what I'm saying is, you know, the lesson for us there that I felt God just prompted me was, let's let God do the convicting. When people encounter God, let me tell you, that's, that's, that's where conviction takes place. Our job is firstly to present the love of Christ you know, which obviously came very, very graciously to us when we so desperately needed it, didn't it? So, looking at our context today, you know, from this, this, uh, this passage of Scripture, uh, you know, we're talking about, about godly speech. You know, when Isaiah called himself um, a man of unclean lips, he wasn't so much saying that he got a potty mouth, right? He wasn't, he wasn't talking about um, bad language, you know, I've already said this a couple of weeks ago, and I, I know I'm kind of covering old ground, but let me reiterate um, that, you know, godly speech is so much more than keeping yourself from cursing or swearing. It's so much more than that. You know, growing up, I have to admit that one of my perceptions, if you, if you were to say, what is godly speech, the first thing that springs to mind, and I'm probably sure most people are in the same boat, you would say, well, it means that you don't cuss, it means that you don't use the Lord's name in vain, and all of those things. Now, Please hear me right. I'm not saying that those things are good to do. 
You know, it's good to keep ourselves from, you know, I believe from, from, from bad language and all of those things. But the point I'm making this morning is that it's so much more than just what we refrain from saying. Godly speech is often more about what we do say than that which we don't say. You know, for example, I know plenty of people who don't use, I know plenty of people who don't use bad language, but they don't give glory to God. They don't acknowledge God's greatness in their lives. They don't worship Jesus. When Isaiah declares himself to be a man of unclean lips, this is what he was saying. He was alluding to the fact that his words haven't always given God credit. That his words haven't always worshipped his maker. That his words uh, haven't always confessed faithfulness and trust in his God. You know, that his words haven't always exalted God. And sometimes that his words have often followed after things that don't fulfill and, and don't satisfy our souls. I think that can be the tale of, of, of all of us, can't it? Isaiah encountered God and he was, he was instantly drawn into this state of, uh, of reverence and all. That's why he cried out, woe is me. Woe is me because I'm, I'm, I'm ruined. I'm in the presence of greatness and I, I realize that I'm, I'm, I'm far from great. Let me tell you, if you want to boil it right down, that is what godly speech is, that we revere our God. And because we revere him, we embrace what God embraces. Godly speech is about embracing that which God embraces. And that's reflective in our language. You see the difference? It's, it's not about being anti-everything. It's not about being anti-everything. Some arms of the church um, can be anti-everything. You know, I've been along to churches before where it seems like it's built upon everything that they're against rather than everything that they're for. There are so many groups in the world today that are, and throughout history, for instance, that have been built on that which they're against. Let me tell you, Christianity, on the other hand, isn't built on a foundation of what it's against. It's built on who we're for. It finds, Christianity finds its identity in who we're for. It finds its identity in Jesus because we're for Jesus. And our speech, uh, you know, should reflect that revelation. You know, I've made Jesus the Lord of my life. I've made Jesus the Lord of my life. Therefore, I'm going to value his word above everything else. Because in it contains all truth. Godly speech happens when we recognize that, that he is the creator and we are the creation. Let me say that again. A godly speech happens when we realize that he's the creator and we're the creation. Let me just tell you what I see as I observe our times. Not that I'm some great philosopher or anything like that or some brilliant political mind or anything. I'm just a pastor that loves Jesus and loves the people that he's entrusted me with. But this is what I see as I, you know, as I look around our world and look around our society. I see a society that loves, it loves to talk about the concept of God. Am I wrong? No, it loves to talk about the concept of God, doesn't it? It loves to talk about things like creation and the origins of the universe, doesn't it? And interestingly enough, society loves to talk about morality. Even though you would consider, you know, Britain these days to be a liberal society, what's, you know, what's interesting is everybody has their own standard of what morality looks like. Everybody cries out for it. But there's this pride in us, isn't there? There's this pride in human beings that says we should be the ones that decide what that looks like. We're the ones that sets the standards. 
we're the one that sets the, sets the standards. And it can, let me tell you, when, when human beings are the one that sets the standards of what morality looks like, I'm not going to get too deep or too, <laughs> you might feel a bit heavy, but um, things go bad very, very, very quickly, don't they? You know, what, what, what's interesting, you know, we're, I mean, we're, it's Remembrance Sunday. I didn't actually plan to, to say this or anything, but what's, what's interesting is Remembrance Sunday today. What I find really interesting that history seems to show that whenever mankind seems to think that we've um, like advanced or that we've progressed, there are words that you'll see that are very popular today. We've progressed. You know, the, 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 the theory of evolution and all this. You know, human beings are getting better and better and better and better. History don't seem to show that, does it? And interestingly enough, whenever we've reached points like that throughout history, where we think that we've progressed and, uh, you know, that we've advanced, something goes disastrously wrong. Something goes disastrously wrong. uh, And it proves that we're still in need of fixing, that we're broken and we're still in need of fixing. You know, the the, the turn of the 20th century was uh, a great example of this. If you look back through, through history... It seemed that the turn of the 20th century coming into the early 1900s was that, you know, we'd reached one of these points. I guess we probably find ourselves in a society like that today, don't we? Where they'd reached a point where they thought, we're no longer plagued by all the things that used to bother us. You know, we're no no longer fighting each other again. You know, we're good moral people. We've advanced. And then, boom, 1914, World War I, however many millions of people wiped off the face of the planet, 20 years trying to recover, and then boom, 1939, World War II happens, millions and millions and millions of souls, and all the conflicts that have, that have gone on since then. I'm not just talking about conflicts, I'm just talking about you know, the everyday um, brokenness of mankind. Whenever mankind seems to think that we've progressed and reached this you know, higher level, and that we're all alright, something seems to come along and, and display our brokenness all over again, doesn't it? What does it show? It showed that we, you know, we struggle with the same age-old things that have always plagued us. And that aside from a relationship with Jesus Christ, the human heart remains broken, doesn't it? Aside from a relationship with Jesus, the human heart is broken. Christians embrace that he is the creator and that we're the creation. That he made the heavens and the earth. The universe came into being at his command, not ours. And that he gave, his, he gave us life and breath, Acts 17, 28. I love that. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Christians embrace the fact that he is the creator and we are the creation. Therefore, I'm not going to show, you know, I'm not going to show contempt for his word by trying to manipulate it and make it say what we want it to say. It's, it, it's a concerning thing that even when you see, you know, certain parts of the church trying to take you know, uh, scriptures that are set in stone for us, that God, God's inspired word, and, and, and try and manipulate them and make them say what we want them to say to kind of suit our preferences. It's a dangerous place to be in. You know, we recognize he's the creator, we're the creation, so I'm going to approach his word with reverence and respect, and I'm going to humble myself and submit to it because I value it more than, how, more than I value how I feel. Godly speech happens when we love what God loves. If you're making notes this morning, write that down. Godly speech happens when we love what God loves. You know, there's some real giveaways in Scripture, isn't there? You asked me this morning, what does God love? 
I could spend all morning trying to, you know, pick out from Scripture the things that God loves because there's plenty. You know, there's, there's some real giveaways in Scripture. You know, for instance, you know, we know according to the creation story, don't we, in Genesis, that, that God loves people. God loves people. We know this because he, he created us uniquely, that out of all creation, mankind is the only one that has the ability to have a relationship with God. Only man was made in God's image and likeness. That's Genesis 1.26, if you want to check that out. So we can safely come to the conclusion, can't we, that God loves people. Therefore, this isn't rocket science that I'm preaching this morning. God loves people. So what does that say to me? If I embrace what God embraces, if God loves people, I love people. If God loves people, I love people. That's why I'm going to, you know, let's put this in the context again of our speech. That's why... If God loves people and I love people, I'm going to speak well about the people that God has put in my life. I'm going to refrain from slander that's so easily done. Look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to stand up here and, and come across as perfect or anything because, look, we all fall, don't we? We all fall by the wayside. We have to continually keep coming back into God's presence like Isaiah says and say, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm standing in the presence of greatness and I've just got to humble my heart and say, Lord, heal me up and forgive me. But because I love what God loves and he loves people, I refrain from slander, I refrain from gossip. I'm not going to speak with a bad motive about the people that God's put in my life. You know, James 4.11, this this scripture, James talks so much about the tongue, doesn't he? And it's actually really informative when when you you put it in the context of our relationships. It's a really great book, you should read it. James 4.11 says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. You can't say it any plainer than that, can you? Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. There are other things in his word that God loves. You know, he loves, you know, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Come on, what does he love? A cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver, doesn't he? I couldn't not put that one in there, could I? Everybody says that when they're taking the offering, don't they? (laughs) You know, in church some years ago, I remember somebody, <laughs> they wanted us to dance up to the offering basket. Pastors have these crazy ideas sometimes because they think, you know what, instead of everything being the same, we should shake things up and do something different. Don't always go well, but we have these crazy thoughts. And somebody wanted us to, to like, dance up to the offering basket. Now, I'm all for breaking out of like British rigidness and stuff, but you're never going to catch me moonwalking up to the offering bucket or anything. <laughs> all right, that's not going to happen. But I tell you what I will do. I will give cheerfully. I will give cheerfully. Why? Is it because every time that I have to part with my money, I, um, you know, I feel on top of the world? No. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not the case. But I'm going to give cheerfully because my God loves a cheerful giver. And if his word says that, I'm going to be a cheerful giver. What else does he love? He loves the world, doesn't he? John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves justice. Psalm 11, 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. It says he loves those who fear him. Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. It's this idea again. He's the creator. I'm the creation. I don't dictate to the creator. He he, he dictates to me. As I said, literally, I could spend all day pulling out of Scripture the things that God loves. But 
there's one area that I really want to focus on because I'm aware of, of time and, uh, you know, we want to go and participate in the wreath laying later on. But um, one particular area that I want us to focus on today is this. God loves faith. God loves faith. And we're gonna, we are going to relate this to our speech. Let's read this together. Hebrews 11.6. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God loves faith. God loves faith. I think it's safe to say that, you know, words of faith, that faith speech is what grabs God's attention. You know, I just get this image. It's not biblical or anything, but I just get this image where, you know, sometimes when we're just giving ourselves over to, the, you know, that depressed mindset that we've got and the melancholy that comes on Monday morning when you're faced with all the tasks and you're grumbling because, you know, you've not got enough money and you've got bills to pay and the car's broken down. You've got a vet bill because the dog can't stay healthy, you know, and all of these problems come and face us and, you know, and you're letting it all out and you're venting and I know you will, we, we hear sometimes, don't we, that, you know, it's, it's good to let it out. And I do believe that there's an element of that that's true, but I'm very much a person as well that believes in speaking faith. Believes in speaking faith. I heard, you know, one preacher just say lately, and I thought it was great, that when somebody comes and says, are you, how are you? I'm not talking about, you know, faking that, you know, everything's all right when it's not. But he says, no, everything is good. Why? Because the reality of the situation is good. No. But faith. It's good because my God says it's good. Because my days are full of Jesus. So therefore I'm good. If Jesus is in my life, then I'm doing well. Godly speech is speech that is filled with faith. And that being the case, I'm a firm believer that there's enemies of faith. And the plan originally, but time won't allow for that. So I'm going to kind of just focus on one thing that I really felt God just lay on my heart to to speak about this morning. Um, There are enemies of faith. I mean, toxic attitudes of the heart that will um, suck away your faith. They'll, they'll kill it. They're faith killers, basically. And I thought, you know, I had originally, I'd got written down in my notes like five or six different things. Um, but time's not going to obviously allow for that. So maybe at some point we may do a series on the enemies of faith. It's really good, you know, good stuff for us to, to be thinking about. But for the time of sake this morning, I just want to focus in on, on one. I just felt that, you know, this was what was on my heart this morning. And I pray that this will be a message for you. If it isn't, then lean in anyway and, uh, you know, and soak this up. Maybe this will help somebody else. But one of the enemies of faith is this bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness that comes through, you know, unforgiveness, through, you know, the hard knocks of life. When people that are supposed to love you do you wrong. The story of Joseph is, is kind of where I went in my, my thoughts. The story of Joseph, you know, a bit of bra- background. If you're, I know most people in here are going to be aware and have read through Genesis time and time and time again. But for those that may not, you know, Joseph, the story of Joseph is a remarkable story. If you've got time, you know, go away and, and, and read through it. It covers quite a few chapters of Genesis, so we're not going to read it all today. But please read the story of Joseph. It's remarkable. There's so many lessons for life in there. So many lessons for life and faith. But Joseph, you know, essentially was a young man who was favoured by his father among all his brothers. You know, his dad had a soft spot for him. He loved him. 
And, um, you know, the brothers didn't like that. The brothers didn't like that, and he gets sold into slavery. He gets dealt a bad blow from those who were supposed to care for him and those that loved him and those that were supposed to respect him. He gets sold into slavery. He gets sold into slavery. You know, I, just that thought, I don't, I don't think we can quite process it, can we, in our 21st century minds when we're living in freedom. He gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he's, many things happen in Joseph's life. He gets sold into slavery. He ends up doing time in prison for a crime that he doesn't commit. But the hand of God's, the, the favor of God rests upon his life. It remains upon his life throughout all of those difficult and bad times. More importantly, you know, and we'll speak about Joseph again in later sermons, but he kept a good attitude. It's all well and good having the favor of God on your life, but let me tell you, if you've got a stinking attitude, it won't go anywhere. He had a great attitude, and he rose to prominence in Egypt, you know, one of the most powerful nations in all the world, and he ends up second in command. The only person above him was Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You know, so he, he, was, he was a man of influence. The hand of, of God was on him. And he sets up this, this remarkable scene where his brothers, the ones that had backstabbed him, that sold him into slavery, actually come for, well, essentially they come for a handout because there's a famine in all the land. And they've heard that there's grain in Egypt because he's, he's, a, he's a great mind. He's a great strategist, is Joseph. And he saved up. He saw this vision from God. It was going to be seven fruitful years and seven really sparse years. And so he saved up during the fruitful years. So Egypt had grain and nobody else did. And his brothers came looking for a handout. Desperate situation. And so this, the scene is set. And he's, 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 he stands. They don't know who he is at the time. He later reveals who he is. But they come and stand before him. And God set up this amazing scene. Bearing in mind at this point when he finally stands before his brothers, or they stand before him rather, it's been 22 years since they sold him into slavery. A lot of time has gone by. A lot of time has gone by, you know, and gosh, we get offended, don't we, when Auntie Pat sent, you know, a birthday card to their kids and they didn't send one to ours, you know. Talk about family fighting, for goodness sake. This, as I look around the room, and I don't think there's anybody sat in here today who got sold into slavery by their brothers and sisters. So if, if you did, come and tell your story, please. But, you know, this is, <laughs> this is on another level to Jeremy Kyle. This is, isn't it? <laughs> Joseph suffered at the hands of those who were supposed to, uh, to, to love him people that were supposed to look out for him people who were supposed to be well-meaning in his life and God sets up this incredible moment in his life where he you know could once again stand before those who had done him incredible harm it's remarkable except this time Joseph's the one in power Joseph's the one that's in a position of authority there at his mercy I was speaking yesterday and it was me and Tony actually we went on a nice car journey and you get talking about all sorts so we got a backstage pass into my sermon this morning um but he's, uh, so he's second in command of all Egypt, as I said. Can you imagine what he could have done with them? It's a bit brutal, isn't it, really, when you think this guy, you know, in the ancient world as well. Yeah, that's right, Rob. That's right. He could have just disposed with all of them, you know, given himself over to vengeance, and nobody would have battered an eyelid, would they? Because he had the authority to do that. You know, he could have, or even if he wasn't in the mood for that, he could have at least just sent them packing. I'm not giving you anything, no grain for you here, not for people like you. And then, you know, family starve or whatever. 
The story of Joseph is, you know, what I find brilliant is that we, you know, we tell the kids this story, don't we? <laughs> we stop them watching like the films that have got like brutality in and stuff like that. But then we tell them the, the story of Joseph. <laughs> but because it, it's sometimes, you know, just portrayed as this nice little children's story, isn't it? About a lovely young boy who got a colourful coat from his dad. And, you know, they did a musical about it, didn't they? I close my eyes, drew back the... Oh, it just makes you want to sway, doesn't it, that one? And we think it's this nice little story, but, you know, let me tell you, the story of Joseph is a tale of how cruelly and abusively human beings can treat each other at times. But on the other side, it's remarkable because it's, it's also an incredible story of the extraordinary power of forgiveness and how it can heal and restore lives and relationships, even when the most atrocious offences have been committed. Please, honestly, if, you'd, if you've not read through it for a while, go, go away and read through it again. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say this, what, you know, what I'm going to come on to. I'm kind of, and I'm being careful to, to say that. You know, the, 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 the text doesn't really imply this. So it's very much my opinion. It's just a bit of a, a nuance, really, from the, from the text that I, uh, that I had a thought about. Um, but the Bible tells us that Joseph was um, Jacob's favorite son, doesn't it? He had a soft spot for Joseph, so we knew they were very close. They had a really good relationship. And it just occurred to me as I, as I, as I read through this and I was thinking on it, that this may have been a helpful factor in Joseph being able to forgive his brothers. It may have been more difficult for Joseph to forgive his brothers had he not had such a close relationship and a respect for his father, Jacob. Like, I'm sure Jacob was a pretty astute guy. You know, he would have been aware, like every father is, that his sons were, you know, had the ability to be scallywags you know, and that they had the ability to do wrong. Um, but he loved them, as every, God, as every good father would. He loved his imperfect sons. And Joseph knew that because he knew his father. He knew what his father valued. And I just thought, what an awesome thought. I thank God for it. Like I said, it, you know, it, it, the, the, the text doesn't actually imply it, so it's very much my opinion. But that, that thought that, yes, people may do us wrong, some people might actually be downright awful to us at points in our lives. And we may find it hard to forgive, but because of our great reverence, for our Heavenly Father who created each one of us, and let's not forget, desperately pursues every single person, even that person that you're holding unforgiveness against, can I just say. Because we revere our Father and because He loves them, we choose to forgive because we love what He loves. I think that may have been a helpful factor in Joseph's decision to forgive his brothers. Had he not had such a close and... Um, loving relationship with his father and known his father's heart, it may have been very easy for him to think, forget these lot. But when we forgive it, you know, we find ourselves free from the bondage of bitterness and resentment that unforgiveness traps us in. Bondage. Joseph was able to release and reconcile with them and in fact help them because he'd refused to give himself over to bitterness. Now, this is no small thing. This is really, really no small thing. And this is where you have to spend some time reading through the story. You can't just scan through it like we sometimes do in our Bibles. Oh, that was the story of Joseph. That was. Dig deep into it. Dig deep into it. This was no small thing. Joseph forgiving his brothers had a huge impact, eternal impact, can I add. Because if Joseph had chosen to reject his brothers, if he'd had them killed or if he'd just let them starve to death, 
If he'd have done that, then the family line that would eventually lead to Jesus would have been wiped out. Maybe you've never seen that in the scripture. But the, event, the, the, the family line that eventually led to Jesus would have been wiped out if Joseph had harbored resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness. And Jesus, as we know, had his own dealings with forgiveness, didn't he? You know, he had that, he had that little moment on the cross, didn't he? I'm being sarcastic, by the way, when I say little moment. Biggest moment in history. You know, except this time he wasn't just forgiving a handful of people. He was, he was achieving salvation. He was achieving forgiveness for every person, for the entire world. What's the lesson here? What I'm saying is this. More hinges upon our bitterness and unforgiveness than we realize. So I just felt God saying this first and foremost to me before I even say it to you. Let it go. Let it go. I'm not going to break into song. I'm not going to do it, all right? I refuse. I'll leave Frozen to the kids. But I just felt God saying this, something as simple as that. Just let it go. Because more hinges upon your bitterness and unforgiveness than you realize. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the ex-wife or the ex-husband. Maybe it's you know, the boss at work who's treated you unfairly. Maybe it's you know, the friend who's betrayed your trust. Maybe it's the moment from your, you know, your childhood that you can't um, move past that causes you to well up with anger every time you think about it. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the pastor that let you down. If we're committed to living by faith, we must put bitterness and unforgiveness aside because it's one of the enemies of faith. And I've written this in my notes. You know, this, is, this is important. Bitterness and faith can't coexist they do both exist but they can't coexist in us you see either one or the other will ultimately have its way you can't hold both of them in perfect tension you've either got to give yourself over to one or you give yourself over to the other you see sometimes we think don't we that harboring bitterness is like you know it's just a harmless little thing it's a little convenience that we allow ourselves but it actually wrecks lives and it dictates futures. Seriously, it dictates futures. The story of Joseph proves that. And this is where, you know, it relates to our speech. Just grounding it back in our, our, our series in godly speech. You can tell a bit a person a mile off. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. You can tell somebody who is struggling with bitterness a mile off. Because the words give them away. They struggle to say anything positive. They're always bringing up, you know, that thing or that person that happened and they walk away they walk around with this you know this clear gaping thorn in their side that's causing them pain but they're often you know we refuse to take it out and allow God to heal we'd rather walk around with the pain the Bible tells us that vengeance belongs to who belongs to the Lord doesn't it Romans 12 19 and I am going to finish because I'm aware of time it says this beloved this is the English Standard Version. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, when we position ourselves as a judge, holding unforgiveness over someone, we, you know, we take what is only rightfully God's away from him. It's a serious thing. That's a serious matter. Jesus actually went as far as saying this. I've actually heard somebody get really uptight and touchy about this scripture and say oh you know well Jesus always forgives you know you can't share that I said, well, the Bible says this 
You probably know the scripture I'm talking about. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says this. Jesus went as far as saying this on the subject. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Brilliant. Come on. Hold on. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I do. I remember somebody getting really uptight about this. Like they clearly you know, weren't in a place to accept that, that scripture. These are the words of Jesus. I think what Jesus was getting at was that each and every one of us desires forgiveness when we've done wrong. That's true, isn't it? Every single person sat in this room, if you've done wrong, forgiveness is something you desire, isn't it? But we want the convenience of holding others in bondage when they've mistreated us. And what Jesus is saying is, guys, look, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. That's double-minded. Now, I want forgiveness, but I don't want to forgive. I'm going to come to a close and, and hand back to Debs. But, you know, what I think is really interesting, this is a really interesting thought. I was reading a, an article just this, this week on uh, psychology. I don't read loads about psychology or anything. I don't want you thinking I'm some kind of boffing because I'm not. <laughs> but I was just reading this interesting article about psychology because there's so much... Like there's so many mental health issues about, aren't there? And I'm, you know, I'm glad that we're now living in an age where it's, you know, it's, we're okay to talk about it. It's a good thing, in my opinion. But you know, it, it seems that not just in the church, but also in the professional health sector, uh, people are becoming more and more convinced that bitterness and unforgiveness are actually at- attitudes that affect a person's health and well-being. I read this this um, this article. This is by a lady called Sherry Roan. Uh, Sherry Rowan, I think it is, in the Los Angeles Times. Um, And she wrote this, Bitterness is so common and so deeply destructive that some psychiatrists are urging it to be identified as a mental illness under the name post-traumatic embitterment disorder. I thought that's remarkable. And this was written in 2009. I checked when it was written. It was 2009. So I do believe that since then it's gone on to, to become... Um, you know, recognize. I might be wrong, so please don't quote me on that. I don't. I don't know. But um, just the fact that it's being talked about, not just in the church, but it's just it's being talked about in the health sector as well, isn't it? Amongst the mental health professionals, I find that remarkable. And uh, you, you know that more and more people are coming to realize that some of these issues that the Bible has been speaking about for thousands of years are so prominent, so prominent in our society, aren't they? The way I see it is this, that the church's message of forgiveness and reconciliation that's on offer through Jesus Christ is positioned to make a massive impact in our world, isn't it? These are, I believe more than ever that some of these things we should, be, we should be pushing more and more as a church, speaking that message of forgiveness and reconciliation. I don't want to be quoted as being a, you know, some kind of small-minded idiot or anything. I know that some mental illness can be neurological and down to chemical imbalance and all that. I'm not, I'm not for one minute saying that you know, mental illness is, is always a result of bitterness and stuff. But quite clearly, people struggle mentally and they are tormented by some of these issues. I am going to come to a close because it's, it's 12 o'clock, but I guess just for us to respond... I was going to ask the worship team to come, but it's, it's all right. We'll close the meeting in just a second. But maybe let's just take a moment of quietness again. That's okay, isn't, isn't it? We're not going to be uncomfortable or anything. I just want to give us opportunity this morning because I, just as much as you in a room like this, I know that there's different issues and different things taking place in our lives 
you know, where we, where we maybe haven't submitted it to God. Issues with people, things maybe recent or things in years gone by, decades ago, I don't know, whatever it is, but the truth is that God wants to give you freedom. God, gives you want to give, God wants to give you freedom from that which, which holds you and that which troubles you. So what I'm urging this morning is, you know, this is your time between you and God. This is your choice. But if something like that is, is troubling you, I want to encourage you today. Don't let it be the enemy of your faith. Don't let it kill your faith. Remember, faith and, faith and bitterness, they can't coexist. So let's just take this moment. If there's some things we've got to let go, let's let them go. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord.